May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to look together at this book, uh, this book of Esther. And I uh, want to say at the outset, it's, it's not a book uh, that I know well. Uh, and certainly I've enjoyed uh, reading it and, and getting to know it just a little bit uh, over this last week. It's a very surprising book. Um, it's, I think, the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. And in fact, uh, it's really uh, sort of difficult when you first read it to find the Lord in this story because it seems so full of politics and power and very human relationships. But as you stay with it and read it further and get to know it better, you will see the Lord there. You'll see him very much in the background. You'll see him between the lines you will see him protecting his people. It begins with this remarkable description of King Xerxes. Strange name, isn't it? Sounds almost like a superpower or a, or a superhero. King Xerxes. And, and King Xerxes clearly is a very powerful emperor. He rules over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Kush is, uh, is what we would call uh, uh, Egypt, but sort of greater Egypt. It would be Egypt and, and Ethiopia. Um, and uh, it's an enormous uh, stretch from India all the way across uh, to, uh, to Egypt and Ethiopia. A wonderfully enormous uh, empire. And uh, you can tell that he is powerful because uh, he demonstrates it. And he demonstrates it uh, by sort of holding a kind of Festival of Britain sort of thing. I don't know if there's anyone old enough to remember the Festival of Britain. I wasn't around then. But for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He wants everybody to know that he is a really powerful person. He is the emperor. He is the superpower of his day. And he wants everybody to see it. And if that wasn't enough, at the end of this, he gives a banquet lasting for seven days. That must be a heck of a banquet, mustn't it? Seven days. And, and during this banquet, um, there, there are all sorts of wonderful, opulent things. People uh, were allowed to come into uh, his citadel, into his palace, and see all his power and his wealth. And we're given quite a lot of detail. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of all these amazing stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, and if that's not enough, each one was different from the other. Handmade goblets of gold. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. And people are allowed to drink as much as they like. The power and the wealth begins to spill over, doesn't it? 
into something which looks excessive, corrupt, and corrupting. In a remarkable sort of introduction to the story, we're told that King Xerxes isn't just powerful, isn't just wealthy. He's got to that point when he is so powerful and so wealthy, he has so much privilege that he begins to lose his bearings. He begins to misunderstand what he is meant to do as a king. There's a, a famous phrase which says, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in these opening verses, we get that description. We get the description of a man of enormous power, almost absolute power, and he is being corrupted by it. He lives in a bubble of privilege where he can act and speak as he wishes. And as we'll see, when he does, he often sounds like a selfish and spoilt child. We are given here a description of the dangers of excess, both physical in terms of wine and wealth, but also uh, those, wealth, those uh, dangers in terms of privilege and power. A slightly less exalted quote, apparently attributed to Spider-Man, says, with great power comes great responsibility. And here is somebody who has forgotten it. People become puppets. People become playthings, including his own wife. Towards the end of the story, he sends these seven eunuchs with these delightful names to bring the queen to him. And why is he going to bring the queen to him? Because he wants everyone else to see how beautiful she is. In other words, she becomes a possession. She becomes a part of his entourage. She becomes another sign of his wealth and his power and his privilege. She becomes an object or a plaything. He summons her so he can show her off. And to her great credit, she refuses. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. She's been doing her bit. She's had a, a banquet for the women of the kingdom. And he summons her at the end when he is drunk and he wants to show her off. And she says no. Blessings on her head. And what does he do? He says, oh, fair enough. I need to sober up before I do this. Not at all. The king became furious and burned with anger. He does the equivalent of stamping his feet and saying, I will have my way. And in, as the story then develops through the rest of the chapter, 
And if you get a chance when you go home to, to read it, please do. King Xerxes does a horrible thing. He deposes her. He says, you're no longer my queen because you didn't come and show everybody how beautiful you are. He deposes her. You're no longer a queen. And worse than that, he gets his counselors, his, his lawyers, his, his kind of privy council around him. And he says, what are we going to do? Look, the women are all rebelling. They're not. They're really not. The women are all rebelling. This could spell the end of civilization. So they come up with a law. And they send the law around the 127 provinces. And they say, every man should be ruler over his own household. How pathetic can this king be? In this bubble of power and privilege, one person has said no to him. And he responds by deposing her and sending out this horrible law which says the boys are in charge. Don't you dare think that you can have anything out of it. The story that is set is a story of power, privilege, and the misuse of these things, and the way in which people are damaged and abused and threatened through it. It's quite a chilling beginning, and the story will get worse. But as we pause at this first chapter, how might we read it and understand it? How might we apply it and say, well, does this have anything to say to us? We are not uh, two and a half millennia ago. We are not uh, sort of swept up into an imperial court where there is absolute power and ridiculous excess. How can this story apply to us? Well, actually, it's not that difficult, is it? To read these words and to see modern expressions of people who abuse their power. Maybe it's a politician, a boss at work, a celebrity, a film star, a singer, or a sports person. Somebody who has power over other people. Someone who is lauded and fated and seen as special and important. And they can basically do what they like, particularly in their immediate sphere of influence. As we read this story, it shows us that Scripture is well aware what happens to people when they become too powerful, when they become too wealthy, when they become too rich and privileged. Scripture shows us that the likely outcome of their behavior will be to abuse and damage and misuse those things. Scripture is realistic. It rings true. But the story of Esther, as we will see it unfold over the next few weeks, 
shows and reminds us that the Lord will not allow this to be the last word. The Lord will keep his promise to his people. So if you, I, any of us, are on the wrong end of this kind of behaviour, where somebody that we have to work with or be around is misusing their power and privilege, then take heart. This is a story for you. If you are struggling to see where God may be part of it, where somebody's behavior is really poor day after day, and you've cried out to the Lord and you said, please deliver me, and you can't see him at work, then this story is for you. Because this story tells us that the bully will not have the last word. It is the voice of God. It is the, 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 the behind the scenes holding of God's people. It is the spirit of the Lord at work that ultimately will have the last word. It is a huge encouragement and reassurance. God has not forgotten you. This will not be the last word. But, and it's a big one, we need also to be honest, don't we? And to ask if this story actually hits even closer to home. Dare we ask, am I, are we, have we been, could we be the bully? Could we be the one who is misusing the power and the privilege and the wealth that we have? Because then the story takes a deeper level, doesn't it? And it comes home to us and say, might I be a little version of King Xerxes? We can look back in history, can't we? We can see moments when nations became bullies. We need only to think ever so quickly about the British Empire, the history of this nation, my nation, going into other people's countries and telling them that their resources were no longer theirs that their government was no longer theirs, that their culture was no longer theirs, that their treasures were no longer theirs. We might think of the church. Sometimes in our history, the church has been very powerful, very wealthy, had a huge privilege, influence. Have we always used it for good? Actually, have we often used it for ill, colluding, for example, in the exercise of slavery for two or three hundred years and profiting by it. Even closer to home, how about ourselves individually now, in our families, amongst our friends, 
at work, in whatever spheres we find ourselves in, how do we behave when we have power over others? Are we tempted to treat people as objects, as means to an end, as, as pawns or, or pieces in our jigsaw, in our game, to get them to do what we want them to do? usable at our own convenience, disposable when they don't do as we wish. Can we dare to see them as Jesus sees them, as people with thoughts and feelings, hopes and fears, just as we do? You see, the story of Esther, and particularly this opening, the story of King Xerxes and his excess, challenges our, our way of using our power and privilege. I often remember the stories of Jesus when he meets vulnerable people. You remember the woman caught in adultery dragged in front of Jesus by men ready to kill her. Jesus frees her, calls her to repentance, and off she goes. Remember the woman who anoints Jesus in Luke chapter 7? That beautiful story and the fragrance fills the room. The fragrance somehow fills the whole chapter. And you can almost hear the intakes of breath around the edge of the room. Does Jesus know who's touching him? Of course he knows who's touching him. But what does he do? He does not make an example of her. He makes her into an example. And he says, look, this woman has wet my feet with her tears and has anointed me with oil and has showed me how much she loves me. You haven't done any of those things. He takes a vulnerable person and he lifts her up. And he says, look, this woman can teach you something. Do you remember when the children come to Jesus and the disciples try and push them away? There's usually no one more vulnerable than children. And they become examples. And Jesus says, unless you accept the kingdom of heaven like a child, you will never enter it. He uses his power to take the vulnerable and lift them up, to make them into something special. That's the way Jesus uses his power. Never to belittle, never to manipulate, never to, uh, to, that they become somehow pieces in his jigsaw. He lifts them up and they blossom and they flourish because of his touch. They become more, not less. When Xerxes touched people, he wanted them to be less. How do we touch people? Are we safe and secure enough in the hands of Jesus to enable others to flourish, 
knowing that when they do, it does not threaten us or diminish us, but actually we get to share in their flourishing and their success. How do we use the power that we have? Xerxes shows us how not to use it. Jesus shows us how to. And we've only just started. Amen.